Going Out or Staying In The Expansion of Chinese NGOs in Africa by Jennifer Su, Timothy Hildebrandt, and Riza Hazmath. Section 1 Introduction The expansion of China's overseas development assistance has mirrored the growth of its state run commercial investments, as embodied in the 10th Five Year Plan from 2001 to 2005, Going Out Policy. Much of China's Overseas Development Assistance, ODA, is directed at nations where China has a substantial stake in the natural resources sector, most notably in Africa. Unlike the dominant practice of Western donors, China, Chinese assistance is provided largely in the form of concessional or low-interest loans and government-financed or government-subsidized infrastructure projects. However, these activities are not exclusively in the domain of the state. NGOs have traditionally played an important role in the development outcomes of a recipient nation. Harnessing a range of resources and power, including material, symbolic, interpretive, and geographical power, NGOs are characterized by many scholars as providing social welfare and capacity-building functions. In fact, domestically, China's NGO sector has played a growing role in the nation's own development, evident by their rising number, totaling over 546,000 registered social organizations. Literature analyzing the behavior of Chinese NGOs has sought to focus attention on the rise and development of the sector. Due to the dominance of the state and tight regulatory supervision of social organizations, the growth of NGOs has not been easy, and the nature of NGO development and maturation might look different here than in other contexts. Put differently, how Chinese NGOs operate overseas can potentially be shaped by their domestic upbringing and thus analytical queries about their behavior, actions, and practices in a new jurisdiction are all perennial to analyzing the opportunities and constraints Chinese NGOs face in conducting development in their host nation. In this article, we examine two jurisdictions in Africa. Ethiopia and Malawi with high levels of Chinese development assistance but with contrasting political regi regime types. Drawing upon the extensive literature on the Chinese NGOs that suggests a rising presence in the domestic sphere as well as the well-documented role that NGOs have played in official development assistance globally, we expect Chinese social organizations to follow the lead of the government's going out development policies. However, our findings indicate that irrespective of political regime type, Chinese NGOs are yet to make a substantial impact in either nation. They have, on the whole, stayed in rather than gone out. We argue that despite the strength of the Chinese state and high levels of international development assistance, domestic politics and regulatory frameworks in host jurisdictions matter a great deal. These local contexts ultimately have constrained Chinese development work, especially in regards to the involvement of NGOs. The article proceeds as follows. After rationalizing our case study selection and discussing our methods, we briefly outline the role of NGOs in development more broadly and then contextualize our research by looking specifically at Chinese NGOs as development actors. In the two sections thereafter, we explore why Chinese NGOs do not operate at a level expected in each jurisdiction, analyzing the myriad de domestic constraints and highlighting, in particular, the role of regulatory frameworks. Finally, we explore the implications for the future NGO involvement in official Chinese ODA and theorize how Chinese NGOs might follow in the footsteps of their Western counterparts. Section 2. Case Study Selection and Methodology Our study looks at two African nations, Ethiopia and Malawi. In both jurisdictions, Chinese investment is significant relative to the size of their economy and population. Further, the two cases were chosen to capture dichotomous political regime types. 
we hypothesized that political regime type might have a strong effect on general openness for civil society organizations, and specifically, the ability for Chinese NGOs to engage in development projects. Ethiopia is a one-party democracy, in actuality semi-authoritarian with a polity score of minus three in 2013, with the People's Revolutionary Democratic Front ruling since 1991, and in the 2015 elections capturing virtually all electoral seats. Unlike the behavior of many Western donors, China has not treated Ethiopia as only an aid recipient. Since 2000, there have been 111 official projects funded, totaling approximately 8.73 billion US dollars, but also a strategic partner and ally. Malawi is a young democratic multi-party government system with the current constitution intact since the mid-1990s. It boasts a polity score of six. Since 2007, China has funded an estimated 32 official projects with initiatives ranging from education, water supply and sanitation, energy generation, agriculture, social infrastructure, totaling approximately 430 million US dollars. The fieldwork is based upon elite interviews that occurred in two simultaneous phases in the summer of 2014. In one phase, we conducted semi-structured interviews with NGO representatives, Chinese officials, and local government officials in Malawi and Ethiopia. In another phase, we conducted semi-structured interviews with Chinese NGOs and semi-autonomous government entities in Mandarin who have operations with the two case study nations. These interviews occurred in Beijing, the location for the headquarters of the Chinese NGOs operating overseas under study. To understand the organizational strategies and practices to be employed for going out. 18 elite interviews in total were conducted, 9 in Addis Ababa, 6 in Luangwe, and 7 in Beijing. Section 3. The Role of Chinese NGOs in Development In this section, we give a broad sketch of NGOs in development, honing in on the specifics of the Chinese case. Most scholars and activists agree that the work of many NGOs is vital to communities around the world. As both advocates and service providers, NGOs are credited for bringing an array of important issues like climate change, poverty reduction, gender inequality, and public health to the attention of the public and onto the agenda of national governments. Despite their potential and successes, NGOs across the world have to contend with issues and questions of representativeness, accountability, and legitimacy, given they are not elected by the constituents in whom they seek to represent. In this context, NGOs are closely watched in nations like China, where there are significant attempts on the part of the state to monitor and regulate their development and movements. Nonetheless, NGOs in China are emerging as important stakeholders in the delivery of social services, in part incentivized by the state's move towards a procurement model. As NGOs are pushed into the service delivery role, the institutional constraints have not necessarily lessened for NGOs. While NGOs are increasingly able to register without a government-sponsoring unit, such regulations only apply to a handful of NGOs working in a few pre-approved categories. Still, Chinese NGOs have expanded and made an impact on a number of important sectors, including migrant welfare, HIV and AIDS, environment, and other issues that do not receive proper attention by the state. As local levels of the state are tasked with the responsibility of welfare delivery, the increasingly cash-strapped local authorities across China will likely shift the burden to individuals, households, and other non-state actors. 
such a situation may be seen as both an opportunity for NGOs to increase their presence, but given the institutional challenges, such as lack of funding, regulatory constraints, and inadequate organizational capacity, NGOs may not be in a position to satisfactorily carry out the necessary social services. As they mature, Chinese NGOs are looking beyond their local communities. Indeed, they are even casting their gaze across national borders. Within the broader framework of China's going out policy, Chinese NGOs are starting to impress their presence abroad. According to New Hanglu, director of the Institute of African Studies at Sejong Normal University, there are some 100 Chinese NGOs working in Africa. The likes of China's National Red Cross and China Foundations for Poverty Alleviation, CFPA, are amongst the organizations with projects in Africa. One important caveat to note in this optimistic assessment of 100 NGOs abroad is the fact that the vast majority are government-organized, non-governmental organizations, also known as G-O-N-G-O's or GONGOs. GONGOs' intimate and intertwined connection with the state can make them qualitatively different from NGOs. In the Chinese context, the major gongos, such as the All-China Federation of Trade Unions and the Communist Youth League of China, emerged during the Maoist era. They were effectively constructs of the state and acted as transmission belts between the party and the people. In terms of social development work, gongos like the CFPA or the Sung Ching Ling Foundation were initially led by individuals with previous party positions, and personnel and finances were often not fully independent from their relevant government ministries at foundation. For instance, since the CFPA's organizational reform in 1999, personnel and finances are now separated from the government, with the ministry's organizational control of the CFPA existing only in name. In the case of China, the prevalence of gongos across the social realm and its overlap with the work of NGOs means that they must be accounted for in the process of social transformation. Our consideration of the role of gongos in Africa is thus necessary in this study due to the overlap between their work and that of NGOs. Furthermore, from the state's perspective, there is little meaningful differentiation between gongos and NGOs. In short, our usage of NGO is broad and all-encompassing, although we are mindful of potential analytical shortcoming and variances. From the standpoint of Chinese state, Chinese NGOs are seen as facilitators of friendlier relations with African nations. As the Chinese Association for International Understanding notes, despite increasing exchanges between Chinese and African governments, many African NGOs are still without adequate infrastructure and capacity-building knowledge, and to that end, the China Association for NGO Cooperation, CANGO, is an important organization to assist in the promotion of knowledge and cooperation between Chinese and African NGOs. In line with the rise of Chinese investments in Africa, Chinese NGOs are seen by observers as a way to soften China's image abroad and to an extent rectify some of the damages caused by Chinese investments. To put it more eloquently, Zodic writes, Chinese NGOs working with African NGOs can make a major difference in helping to avoid the sort of conflict that has taken place in the Zambian Copper Belt. Chinese NGOs can also help African communities hosting Chinese enterprises to talk effectively with both local managers and other China-based senior executives. Here, the role of Chinese NGOs is seen as supplementing the corporate social responsibilities of Chinese companies. 
Such perspectives suggests that Chinese NGOs have a limited role in actually promoting long-term development projects independent of Chinese commercial interests. Chinese involvement in Sudan's Moreau Dam project has also sparked discontent amongst local Sudanese displaced by the project. As Scurry notes, if China is to avoid local discontent, as in the case of the Moroi Dam project, China needs to follow international standards of good practice and to achieve this to allow Chinese NGOs to engage with their African counterparts greater involvement in such projects. The push for Chinese for-profit and non-profit organizations to expand abroad has led to some undesirable consequences as noted above. To mitigate this, the Chinese state has sought to translate the notion of harmonious society into harmonious world. Bosshard believes that as Chinese companies continue to engage in environmentally and socially vulnerable sectors, they will increasingly have an interest in working with civil society groups that can help identify and resolve social and environmental problems, thus contributing to the harmonious relations and development. Nevertheless, the range of Chinese NGO activities, whether NGO or gongo, have extended to areas such as agricultural training, drawing on China's own development and agricultural experiences in the 1980s and early 1990s. Given the mandate to go out and a range of expertise developed within the last 25 years by Chinese NGOs and gongos in social development, there is potential for these organizations to make some impact in nations such as Ethiopia and Malawi. There is also, to be sure, a real demand for both development assistance and the expertise that NGOs can provide. Both Ethiopia and Malawi are one of the world's poorest nations and least developed, with a 2014 Human Development Index of 0.434 and 0.414, respectively, well below the African average of 0.475. Despite our expectations and the rhetoric by Beijing, we did not find sustained Chinese NGOs activities in Ethiopia and Malawi. However, as we show in the following sections, future Chinese NGO activities in Ethiopia and Malawi will be shaped by the political and institutional context of the host nation. In Ethiopia, participation opportunities for Chinese NGOs may be more readily available due to the one-party government, whereas Malawi's young liberal democracy may present more constraints. Section 4 the case of Ethiopia. Regulatory environment. The famines of 1973 to 1974 and 1984 to 1985 provided a platform for international NGOs to emerge and gain prominence through relief efforts. The conflict between the authoritarian rule of the Derg and rebel groups also shaped the NGO sector, with NGOs working in tacit and sometimes overt support of the government or its opposition. However, with the overthrow of Mengistu Haile Mariam in 1991, the Ethiopian NGO sector was propelled into chaos with little resources and capacity to make any significant impact. The new government under the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front endeavored to reform the sector by insisting on less foreign dependence and greater sustainability of projects, as demarcated in the 1995 Guidelines for NGO Operations. As a consequence, the mid to late 1990s witnessed an expansion of homegrown Ethiopian NGOs from 70 in 1994 to 368 in 2000 and 2,775 in 2009. The 2005 elections marked a souring of relations between the state and NGO sector, where NGOs were accused of supporting opposition parties and the ensuing violence due to electoral disputes. A series of laws were promulgated following the election including the 2009 
Proclamation for the Registration and Regulation of Charities and Societies to Tighten Control and Management of NGOs. While the proclamation seeks to establish a regulatory framework for NGOs, it was more restrictive in nature, highlighted by the policy NGOs cannot receive more than 10% of their funding from foreign sources. In addition, only Ethiopian NGOs, those controlled and funded within Ethiopia, can advocate and work in the following areas. Human and democratic rights, gender equality, rights of children and disabled persons, conflict resolution, and support to the judiciary. As the vast majority of Ethiopians' pop population fall below the poverty line of two U.S. dollars a day, the funding restrictions placed on NGOs means that it would be extremely challenging for Ethiopian NGOs to raise 90% of its finances domestically. Ironically, at odds with its own proclamation, a quarter to one-third of the Ethiopian government's budget comes from foreign aid. The restriction on areas of operation for NGOs stemming from the 2009 proclamation demonstrate that the di discourse on political and human rights remain in the realm of control of the state. Nevertheless, contemporary developments in the Ethiopian sector parallel the experience of Chinese NGOs where the state is an active and strong participant in its development. Opportunities and Constraints The belief that the Chinese Ethiopian governments share an ideological affinity coupled with substantial Chinese commercial engagements in Ethiopia prompted the Ethiopian NGO representatives to observe the potential for Chinese NGOs to make an impact in their nation. The lack of Chinese social development assistance and collaboration with Ethiopian NGOs, while not surprising, as most cooperation is at the government level, our respondents felt that there is much that can be transferred in terms of skills and knowledge. Our interviewees' observations of Chinese workers across the numerous construction sites coupled with rising investments made by Chinese companies and government prompted an optimistic outlook on potential positive behaviors and practices that can be imparted to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian country director of the National Alliance of State and Territorial AIDS Director, NASTAD, noted that China has very good relations with the government. The capacity of the Chinese is going up, and they have provided good lessons to us in terms of good work culture. Looking at the extent of Chinese investments in Ethiopia, the country director of Hope International suggested that perhaps the Chinese might bring in new concepts of entrepreneurship and investment to social development. These observations signify that Ethiopian NGO representatives associate good working culture in the for-profit sector with potential success in the non-profit sector. While none of the two NGOs are currently partnering with Chinese NGOs, both directors believed that there was substantial room for knowledge and skill transfers. While our interviewees were aware of the negative press surrounding Chinese involvement on the continent, many were able to look beyond such reports and focus on the practicalities of the potential benefits of a partnership with Chinese NGOs. In contrast to other African nations where there are substantial mineral resource deposits that are of interest to China, such as oil and copper, Ethiopia is a landlocked country with reserves of gold, platinum, tantalite, soda ash, and phosphate rock. Unlikely to match the capacity of other African nations, the Ethiopian president, Mulatu Tezholm, has emphasized that the bilateral re relations between the two nations is predicated on mutual interests, common understanding, and not on Chinese need for natural resources. It's not the raw materials that attract Chinese to Ethiopia. Rather, it is the mutual interests and benefits, mutual respect and common understanding we have, and is going to be further strengthened. The notion that there is mutual understanding between the two governments, 
translating into an ideal environment for Chinese NGOs to enter Ethiopia is a recurring theme in the interviews. Unlike the case in Malawi, Ethiopia's one-party rule and political culture parallels that of China, thereby providing likely partnerships between two, the two social sectors. Accordingly, the time is ripe for this partnership since the competition between Western and Chinese development forces and Ethiopia is likely to benefit from the contest. Moreover, given the concern the Ethiopian government has with Western organizations operating in Ethiopia, particularly with regards to their criticisms of the NGO regulation, Chinese NGOs are more likely to be welcomed by the Ethiopian authorities as they less likely to address controversial and sensitive issues. This mutual understanding is further stressed by a foreign NGO representative, who noted that both the Chinese and Ethiopian authorities understand each other in terms of state monopolies, authoritarianism, and a one-party system. Aside from the political affinities, NGO representatives, while cautious of Chinese commercial involvement in China, are at the same time making plans to seek Chinese collaboration. The country director of NASTAD admits, We haven't sought out Chinese funding yet, but it's something I'm starting to think about. Clearly, the potential for Ethiopian NGOs in partnering or having Chinese funding is exciting and potentially transformative, as noted by NASTAD's director. I am very eager to work with Chinese NGOs and get Chinese funding. The eagerness is also shared by the country director of Canadian Hunger Foundation, CHF. I would have no problem to write grants soliciting their Chinese donation. At the end of the day, if I can have Chinese and Canadian donors work together to tackle gender violence, why not? Here we can see the desire mixed with a sense of pragmatism. The director of HOPE, while enthusiastic at the possibilities afforded by Chinese funding, believed that the sharing of knowledge and expertise is an important part of the process. Our interviewees were circumspect with regards to the possible constraints facing Chinese entry into the Ethiopian NGO sector. As indicated by our interviewees, the negative press surrounding Chinese investments in Africa may present problems to Chinese involvement in social development. Apart from these general concerns, there were also questions about just how Chinese social stakeholders conduct development. For example, the director of CHF suggested that unless Chinese NGOs come into their own, then there is a potential that they may be like the West. The concerns expressed were broad and related to the general involvement of the Chinese in Ethiopia, from the quality of infrastructure to the Chinese workers present in the nation. In the eyes of our NGO interviewees, the possible opportunities presented by Chinese social development assistance, whether from NGOs or the government, would seem to outweigh the costs. Furthermore, the representatives noted that Chinese social stakeholders would experience more opportunities rather than constraints upon entering Ethiopia and into partnerships with local groups. Section 5. The Case of Malawi Regulatory Environment The current robust state of the NGO sector in Malawi obscures a much more complicated history that has received only scant attention in the academic literature. A longtime civil society leader and now presidential advisor on civil society, Mabutu Bamuzi, notes that Malawi had a very few local NGOs as recently as 1994. This was, of course, not for a lack of need, but rather constricted political space under post-independence where the one-party rule of Hastings-Banda lasted 30 years. Multi-party elections in 1994 heralded a new era and a significant and fast political opening that led to a boom period for NGOs, who generally focused on issues such as youth empowerment, human rights, and HIV and AIDS. Although this opening and subsequent growth of the sector is part attributable to the Western model of development aid, notably in a Wilsian tradition, 
that favors the principal channeling funds through the agent, the local civil society organization. Other observers, such as the representative from the Institute for Social Research and Empowerment, a prominent Malawi think tank, contend that the new regime purposely created an environment positive for NGO growth in order to display its democratic bona fides. Despite early successes for these organizations, the development of NGOs in Malawi has not been entirely linear, nor has the relationship of NGOs with the state always been positive. The interviewee at the Institute for Social Research and Empowerment describes pendulum-type swings in the relationship between the state and NGOs. In 2004, Bingu Wamadharika was elected president in part due to strong support from the increasingly important civil society sector. But over his eight-year tenure, this relationship became increasingly complicated with the president dividing and ruling over the large NGO community, favoring some while isolating others. Bingu was re-elected in 2009 with a mandate supported by 67% of the vote. Civil society actors, once crucial for a support base, were seen as a liability. Those activists more critical of the government were beaten up and terrorized. Indeed, during the last three years of Bingu's rule, NGOs found it difficult to carve out space in the country as they were more widely deemed as oppositional forces. In essence, even though the nation remained at least nominally democratic, the operational and institutional environment for NGOs is shaped by the political character of the regime in power at each given time, an observation that is generalizable across cases, irrespective of the democratic or non-democratic nature of the jurisdiction. Even during this more negative period of NGO development in Malawi, Activists held a good deal of ground and did not succumb to government bullying. Indeed, NGOs in Malawi are notable for their ability to create both a cultural of self-protection and the institutional structure to back it up. Even before the end of one-party rule, a small number of local NGOs created an umbrella organization, the Council for Non-Governmental Organizations in Malawi. C-O-N-G-O-M-A. While initially founded to protect civil society organizations from the state, its current broader mandate is centered on coordinating a network of NGOs with the government, identifying gaps in, NGO, in the NGO sector, and advocating for a more conducive institutional and regulatory environment for NGOs. But CONGOMA's most interesting and perhaps most significant function has been its central role in writing the nation's NGO registration law. According to the organization's leader, Ronald Matonga, a grassroots effort to protect the continuation of political space for NGOs quickly took the form of creating a registration law for social organizations. They sold themselves as an independent body, but perhaps most importantly, one that would do all of the work and cover the costs, which were covered by membership fees of registered organizations, of registering and regulating the growing NGO sector in the nation. Cleverly, the organization essentially preempted the state in creating a regulatory framework, which is a distinct reality both in China and Ethiopia, this makes the regulatory environment in Malawi decidedly unique, for it has been the NGO community itself who have written the rules for registration rather than leaving it in the hands of the government. The effect has been NGOs registered in Malawi represents a more authentic civil society without the advert oversight by the state. Opportunities and Constraints Although Malawi functions as a reasonably open, liberal democracy, the relationship between state and non-state actors is complex. Curled within this complexity between state and geo relations are similarities with China. Like in China, a large number of the NGOs operating in the no nation do so as service providers. 
These organizations essentially work at the pleasure of the state and help it govern in areas that it lacks the capacity, time, or political will. It is as service providers that most NGOs have enjoyed political space and economic opportunities that have been fundamental for their individual growth and the larger development of the NGO sector in China. Informants who have followed the development of local Malawi NGOs, often from the inside, all report a kind of maturation wherein the organizations learn how to behave. For example, Mamuzi suggests that civil society has changed fundamentally, not because they have been repressed, but that they can be more effective if they are more moderate. It was previously perhaps too loud, too vocal, and too frequently using demonstrations and sit-ins. Its actions were more based on emotions. But in the case of China, this is ultimately the only space and role available for NGOs, whereas in Malawi, there remains what the interviewee of Institute for Social Research and Empowerment described as the 100% Western model type that conducts advocacy and often in an adversarial manner whereby the NGO comes into conflict with the state more often. The fact that our Malawian interviewees refer to them as a Western type of NGOs suggests that even though they might have some political space to operate, unlike in China, this democratic environment might well see them as more foreign. This suggests that the state will be open to providing more opportunities for those who subscribe to a varying partnership governance model that is commonplace among NGOs operating in mainland China. Given the particular strength of Chinese NGOs in the service delivery realm, interviewees suggest that possibility for some collaboration in the future. Long-time civil society participants, now in government and think tank roles, echoed the potential opportunity for a division of labor, with Chinese NGOs engaged in service delivery, which appears to be their comparative advantage with local NGOs focusing on policy advocacy. This would likely mirror the division of labor currently between local and international NGOs in the nation. For instance, the head of CONGOMA reports that no INGOs conduct human rights or advocacy work, as this is reserved for local groups. Yet, the presidential advisor on civil society issues was quick to note that if Chinese NGOs came to Malawi, they would be scrutinized on issues of transparency and accountability. Another suggested that if Chinese NGOs displayed different attitudes on, dem on democracy from Malawi NGOs, there would be a problem. One interviewee from the Institute of Social Research and Empowerment who had traveled to China several times, wandered out aloud if China had any real NGOs, as all their closeness to the state is just too much. They lack freedom, and so would bring a different character of civil society if they came. As another type of constraint, local NGOs in Malawi, like smaller, less institutionalized NGOs in many developing nations, sometimes report feeling overshadowed by larger international NGOs. Brain drain, resource hoarding, and capacity sucking. This led a large number of domestic NGOs to boycott all INGO organized meetings in 2006. The NGO-friendly regulatory framework outlined above has sought to address many of these concerns. It mandates that INGOs operating in the nation must have a board comprised of at least 20% locals. Although this has not appeared to scare off many Western INGOs, in fact, our interviewees noted that Action Aid has not just met the 20% threshold, but created a board of 90% local Malawians. This might well be a constraint to Chinese NGOs. That is, if they mirror the Chinese model, they will likely have a majority to all staff being Chinese. Additionally, informants all pointed to what they saw as China's real comparative advantage, 
large infrastructure projects, and their current model of development funding, which favors no-string loans. China's development aid is designed solely to be government-to-government, -government, with no money being funneled to grassroots civil society organizations. With China controlling these purse strings, the Malawi government has little control over where the money flows. This makes funding of grassroots NGO projects increasingly difficult with the Chinese funding model. Furthermore, given that many NGOs work in the field of social development, many in Malawi do not believe that the Chinese government would be interested in these projects. A Chinese embassy official puts it as such. We prefer the immediacy of government-to-government -government development. Why would we want to resort to using NGOs if we can do the work well ourselves? The qualification here, of course, is if the government is only interested in infrastructure development, they see little need to enlist the help of their own NGOs. However, if the state becomes interested in more social and welfare development projects, we may see a window of opportunity for Chinese NGOs to enter Malawi. While the developmental interests of the Chinese government certainly matters, what is to stop well-funded Chinese NGOs from entering Malawi independently? It is not just the general reluctance or suspect feelings on the part of local civil society actors that gets in the way. Rather, the regulatory structure that was created by local NGOs themselves as described in the previous section, which is perhaps the largest impotent for NGO entry in Malawi. The director of CONGMA, the Independent Regulatory Board for NGOs, notes that all INGOs operating in the nation need to be registered, and he was highly doubtful that Chinese NGOs would be able to meet the criteria. Like other interviewees, he noted how Malawi NGOs value both independence and internal democracy, noting that registration required that NGOs must have a committee of directors that would, was separate from operations and had 20% Malawi representation, and that these organizations could not be formed or administered by the government or gongos. This may be problematic proposition for Chinese NGOs to achieve. Section 6. The Potential Role and Behavior of Chinese Gongos Interviews with Chinese Gongo representatives emphasize their work in promoting cooperation, understanding, and exchanges with their African counterparts. Although Gongos are effectively agents of the state, they potentially have an important role to play in international development. Notwithstanding, it does appear that their reception by host jurisdictions can be less than rosy, as seen above. Gongos, such as the China NGO Network International Exchange, CNNIE, and Beijing NGO Association for International Exchanges, BNAIE, see themselves as platforms for promoting cross-cultural learning. As the secretary of CNNIE noted, her organization is chiefly a networking platform. The Deputy Division Chief of BNAIE articulates similar organizational aims. The Beijing NGO, NGO Association is primarily a networking platform and therefore we cooperate with the largest and most influential local African NGOs. While having commensurate goals as the previous two organizations, the larger Chinese African People's Friendship Association, CFPA, works more at the government level, thereby reinforcing its Gongo na nature. With various forms, lectures, study tours, and publications, the activities of CFPA are bolstered by its cooperation with more 20 Chinese government departments and similar type of organizations in Africa, such as the Ganya China Friendship Association, Association of Local Government Authorities of Kenya, or South Africa China People's Friendship Association. The China Youth Development Foundation, CYDF, and China Foundation for Poverty Alleviation, CFPA, are slightly different in focus 
where they are engaged in direct delivery of services. CYDF's China Africa Hope Project, launched in 2011 in Kenya, Burundi, and Rwanda, is its flagship project on the African continent, with the aim of building a thousand primary schools in Africa. A range of Chinese companies have funded CYDF's project in Africa. CFPA's current focus is in the building of hospitals across Sudan. With a budget of 60 million RMB, which translates to 9.67 million US dollars, CFPA plans to build 13 hospitals and to train medical staff and provide equipment to the hospitals. According to the Chief of Division, CFPA intends to use Sudan as a model to roll out similar projects in Ethiopia, Chad, and Kenya. Despite the desire to undertake further projects in Africa, three of the five Gongos believed that having sufficient funding is one of the biggest challenges to their organization. In particular, the Division Director for South and East African Affairs of CFPA noted that in addition to funding, she also needed more people willing to work in Africa. Otherwise, it will not be possible to establish a permanent office there. For BNAIE, the situation is similar. Without more funding, it does not have the capacity to establish a permanent office in Africa. Chinese Gongo representatives demonstrate that their organization are at the beginning of their social development work in Africa. Despite the enormous commercial interests and investments from China, the development sector as represented by the Gongos do not have sufficient resources to make the social impact that it intends to. Section 7. Implications and Conclusion the state of the Ethiopian and Malawian NGO sectors suggests that there is both room and opportunity for Chinese NGOs to enter both jurisdictions. While Chinese NGOs have not had the same history or time in operation as Western NGOs, the experience accumulated within China where development conditions more aptly reflect the recent experiences of Ethiopia and Malawi, provide a litany of best-slash-worst practices and lessons learned that can be transferred. Further, interviewees in Ethiopia and Malawi note that Chinese NGOs and social development assistance would be a welcomed addition in funding local social programs. The combination of expertise and need demonstrate two areas in which Chinese NGOs can capitalize and have comparative advantage relative to Western NGOs. Having now understood both how Chinese NGOs have developed in their own context and analyzed the domestic conditions that offer both opportunities and constraints for entry into Ethiopia and Malawi, we now explore the most likely future scenario. That is, insofar as Chinese NGOs continue to mature and follow the developmental and commercial interests of mainland China, what might their behavior look like? Moreover, how should we theorize beyond these cases into other parts of the developing world as China continues to go out? First, and perhaps most likely in the immediate term, there will be more of the status quo. As has been replicated elsewhere in Africa, we will see more one-off temporary entry of Chinese experts or volunteers. In Ethiopia, while in the field, we were informed of the presence of a large team of donors from the Beijing Eye Hospital who were in the nation to provide social capacity, non-political action, which basically involved providing short-term surgery for those in need. The economic and commercial counselor based at China's embassy in Luangli, Malawi, highlighted one program of non-state actors with Chinese government assistance in the form of the China youth volunteers who stayed in the nation from 2009 to 2010 and were tasked to primarily teach agriculture and computer skills to various government ministries. Another observer recalls groups of Chinese dentists that came to the nation for three weeks at a time. 
These temporary project-based interventions that most notably lack any attempt to institutionalize Chinese social organizations in the nation is a model that widely used in mainland China. Second, given Beijing's professional preference of government-to-government linkages in development reinforced by our interviewees, this may suggest a more sustained presence at the state level without the involvement of independent NGOs, but rather gongos. Such future gongo initiatives will likewise have a one-off and ad hoc nature. While such one-off projects are easy to control, they lead to a loss of institutional knowledge, which likewise is witnessed in the domestic Chinese context, and often the solutions are short-term and temporary. Finally, we suspect that the gongoization of the development may not be a major barrier for entry for the Chinese in Ethiopia, largely due to the similarities in the political structure of the one-party system. In this system, the state is an unavoidable factor in all aspects of social, political, and economic development. On the other hand, the regulatory framework governing NGOs in places such as Malawi would seem to make life difficult for gongos to enter the jurisdiction. Chinese NGOs who have a preference for operating in the nation will have to adapt by formally distancing themselves from the state, even if informally they are intimately tied. While we acknowledge that, at first glance, Chinese gongos may not look so different from Western NGOs, especially when considering sources of state NGO funding as a proxy. For example, Swedish and Norwegian NGOs receive up to 35% of their finances from their respective governments, and Belgian and Irish up to 77%. What is different from Chinese gongos and their Western counterparts is, as previously noted, Chinese gongos emerge largely out of the constructs of an authoritarian state. In order to survive and flourish in China's domestic, political, and institutional environment, Chinese NGOs developed adaptative strategies which are now ingrained in their organizational culture and behavior. From another standpoint, Western NGOs, unlike Chinese NGOs, are generally able to create and implement their organization's goals and strategies without real or the threat of direct government interference. Suffice to say, Ethiopia and Malawi highlight some critical areas where Chinese NGOs may face entry barriers but also opportunities to address the development needs in Ethiopia and Malawi. Our findings indicate that political regime type, whether authoritarian, Ethiopia sharing similarities with China, or democratic, Malawi, will pose a range of future challenges to Chinese NGOs. Consequently, we suggest that the authoritarian nature of Ethiopia's political system is unlikely to pose a significant, albeit some, advantage for Chinese NGOs due to the strict 2009 Proclamation for the Registration and Regulation of Charities and Societies, which, ironically, the Chinese state is currently drafting an even more restrictive regulatory document in this fashion than the Ethiopian version. In Malawi, we see challenges of a different kind. Its young democracy has presented NGOs the opportunities to assume the role of watchdog of the government and have played an important role in the process of consolidating Malawi's democracy. Thus, Chinese NGOs may have to contend with issues including governance, accountability, and transparency. The value placed on democratic governance both at the political level and for NGOs, as indicated by our interviewees, may prove to be an institutional and regulatory challenge for Chinese organizations seeking entry into Malawi. In short, a nation's political regime type can potentially present either an opportunity or constraint for Chinese NGOs going out in Africa. <laughs>